really glad to be joined um, once again by Yolanda Wilson um, by Zoom, who's coming to us from Washington, DC. Um, we just say a couple of words about what today's, today's event is gonna look like, and then I'll introduce Yolanda and hand it over to her. So um, the kind of genesis of this conversation is Yolanda, I, and another collaborator, Corey Garibaldi, had meant to hold a kind of small workshop on race and medicine and health inequalities more broadly um, on the 13th of March, which was both Corey and Yolanda arrived in Toronto the evening when the University of Toronto first announced its closure. Um, so that was called off because of this kind of unprecedented pandemic. We managed to chat briefly and then we came back and had a YouTube event that some of you may have seen a couple of weeks ago talking about looking, you know, with all of our interests in race and medicine, um, health disparities in the specific context of COVID. Um, and then um, in the interim since that last event, we've seen not only the continued unfolding of the pandemic, but also arguably the largest kind of uprising for racial justice and Black liberation in a generation in response to the murder of George Floyd in Minneapolis, but also others like Breonna Taylor in Canada. We've seen fewer protests, but there have been both events in solidarity with what's happening in the States and also calling attention to the death of individuals like Regis Kuczynski, um, a young Afro-Indigenous woman in Toronto. Um, and so it seems kind of like, you know, something Yolanda said when we chatted on the phone about this the other day, it's like, we've been talking about doing this collaboration and history keeps kind of uh, overtaking us and there keeps being more stuff than we ever thought there was to take account of, right, as history unfolds. So basically what we wanted to do today is have a conversation and the way that's going to look is Yolanda will talk for, um, briefly five minutes or something, um, give some of, kind of her initial thoughts um, as a bioethicist about the kind of co-coincidence of a global pandemic and a mass uprising and protest movement. And then we'll go back and forth. I have some questions and kind of prompts prepared that we'll talk about. But also, I really want to encourage all of you to, who are watching in the YouTube channel to pose written comments in the chat function. And last time we did this, we got a lot of written comments. Um, and you know, I'll try to keep an eye on those as we go forward so that we can incorporate some audience feedback. Obviously, we're not, none of us are uh, tech savvy enough to set up like live participation from the audience. But I think, in fact, the, the um, the written submissions um, works works pretty well. So with that said, um, I'm gonna hand it over to Yolanda Yvette Wilson, who's a 2019-2020 fellow at the National Humanity Center and a 2019-2020 Encore Public Voices fellow, also an assistant professor of philosophy at Howard University in Washington, DC, where I believe you're coming to us from. Um, their research interests include bioethics, social and political philosophy, race theory, feminist philosophy, broadly interested in the nature and limits of the state's obligations to rectify historic and continuing injustice, particularly in the realm of healthcare, 
And she's developing an account of justice that articulates specific requirements for racial justice in healthcare at the end of life. And just kind of on a more informal note, um, Yolanda's work in kind of centering questions of race, racism, and racial justice within the kind of framework of academic bioethics, I think has been um, really important for the field, but also for my thinking and how to approach kind of questions of race and medicine and healthcare from a philosophical perspective. So I've gained a lot both by reading your work and then more recently by, by talking live. So anyway, I'll hand it over to you. Well, thank you, Elena. Um, it, this has just been such an amazing collaboration. It just, it doesn't feel like we just met, <laughs> you know, um, a few months ago. So this is really good. Um, and it seems as though, you know, every time we have plans to get together or talk about something, as you said, some new, new thing happens. So first, I just want to thank Elena and Marcus at the Center for Ethics of the University of Toronto for uh, anyway, helping us pull this together really, really quickly. And so um, I hope that, and thank you to the audience who is following along on YouTube and uh, Facebook also, or just YouTube, just YouTube. Um, yeah, so thank you. So I just wanna kind of give a little bit of background about how and why I'm thinking about this. And I think Elena shares some of the the same consideration. So Medical News Today aggregated a few numbers um, in the last week. And some of these you may have heard. And of course, as new data emerge, emerge you know, um, we have to modify those things. But in the US, <clears throat> Black people are like two and a half to three and a half times more likely than, than their white counterparts to die of COVID-19. And in some, in some places, right, so, so that's kind of the overall number, but in some states, the disparity is much as five to 10 times as likely to die. And kind of overall, Black people are twice as likely to be hospitalized. So already we see this kind of disparity. The death rate in Black communities in the U.S. is about one in 2,000. It also turns out, given that the death rate is about one in 2,000, that Black people in the U.S. are two to four times more likely than their white counterparts to know someone who has COVID-19, right? To know at least one person. And in many instances, um, we know more than one person who, who has either been diagnosed from COVID or even who's gotten really sick or who's died. So my hometown of Albany, Georgia, was for a period a significant hotspot for COVID-19. And in fact, um, at the height of the crisis in Albany, it was number three in the world. Now, just to give you some context, my hometown is fairly small. There are about 70,000 people, um, a few more if you count kind of people out in the rural areas who still live in the county, but if who live out in the county, but if you, if you just count the town, we're at about 70,000 people. And so the idea that the per capita, I'm sorry, I don't know if I said that, if I clarified that, the per capita death rate was number three in the world in a town that small was really telling. So there was a, there was a period where um, if you looked at kind of the global per capita death rate, there was um, Wuhan, China, Lombardy, Italy, and Albany, Georgia. Um, New York, which of course is a much bigger city, uh, was like number six or seven. So the U.S. Uh, in the U.S. and so I'm sorry, in the world. So in the U.S., Albany, Georgia was um, 
for a while, the hotspot in the nation, although it didn't get the same level of attention um, in terms of per capita death rates, it's, although it didn't get the same um, level of attention that New York did for obvious reasons. I mean, New York is an international city. It's better known. I'm not saying that we shouldn't have cared about what was happening in New York. I just wanted to provide a little context, um, broader context about the numbers, but also some context about, I guess, given my own biography and what I do, why this became particularly salient for me, right? Given that I'm from such a small town and given what the per capita death rate looked like, um, I think Albany, I think it's a majority black city. I should have I should have checked those numbers. Um, but it is a rural town. As the New York Times said in, in its highlight of Albany, Georgia, it's 40 miles from the nearest interstate, which my mother found deeply offensive. She said they didn't have to make us sound quite so country, but we are country. Um, but yeah, but given that, you know, I can't help but know people who have gotten sick and or who've died from COVID-19. And my personal and professional circle look kind of the same. So I have a friend and colleague, Akila Jefferson, who was an allergy immunologist, um, originally from New Orleans, a black woman. And she wrote a Huffington Post piece last week where she talked about having five members of her extended family who were diagnosed with COVID, two of whom died. And she talked about how her white colleagues right, overwhelmingly hadn't known anyone. In fact, I think none of her white colleagues even knew anyone who'd been diagnosed directly um, with COVID-19. And so, you know, Black people are seeing this up close, right? This isn't just kind of theoretical. The numbers aren't just hypothetical. We can actually attach names and faces to those numbers. And one thing I'm kind of interested in is the psychological toll that that takes on Black communities in particular in the US, right? We don't have the luxury of just kind of thinking this isn't a big deal or being COVID deniers or running out demanding that we get haircuts when about one in 2000 of the US population, US Black population has died. But what that also means is that the decision variables are different for us. And I know Elena and I are gonna talk about that a little bit more. So when you add that to the fact that so many Black people in the US have medical conditions that impact our tasks of daily living, our overall well-being, and even how our bodies respond to COVID-19, um, right, the calculation becomes even more complicated. So I know, I know, and Elaine and I are probably going to talk about this a little bit, that a lot of people bristle at evoking the kind of underlying conditions language to think about um, Black people with regard to both COVID-19 and also we see this conversation sometimes in um, these police killings, right? We, we saw that a little bit with George Floyd in the initial autopsy report and also um, with Eric Garner, right? So, so we can come back to that. Um, a lot of times the underlying condition conversation feels both victim blaming and also as kind of an excuse or justification for why these deaths are happening and why perhaps even um, there's no public obligation to respond to them, or at least maybe there's a reduced public obligation to respond to them. But for me, I want to say, or I do say, and I claim that the high rates of things like diabetes, hypertension, respiratory illnesses like asthma and COPD, um, autoimmune illnesses like lupus, 
that have been shown to make COVID-19 even worse, right, if you get it, shown to complicate the diagnosis and the recovery process. Um, those thems are themselves both manifestations of, and I would say an indictment of racism, right? The mere fact of these kinds of medical conditions aren't excuses, right? They themselves are a reflection of racism, they are. And so medical racism in particular, right? Not just in terms of racialized health disparities, but in terms of access to healthcare, what kind of healthcare one can access and how one is treated when one engages healthcare systems also become part of this story that, you know, um, some of the underlying conditions languages overlooks. And so in terms of these protests that are now international protests, right? The fact that in spite of this, Black folks in particular are taking to the streets anyway, signals to me just how important it is um, in terms of our own lives to, to respond, to, to make sure that we do what we can do to bring about change and to protest the injustices that are that are perpetrated against us. Now, I've seen two streams of negative response and I kind of want to tie them to the kind of broader social and political picture. The first I've seen in the media, on social media also, is a kind of preemptive victim blaming um, of an anticipated COVID spike coming in the next few weeks, right, around, you know, if there weren't all these gatherings of people, right, you know, we, we wouldn't have this spike that, that some people are imagining is on the way. And I think um, that line of thinking ignores the fact that there was always kind of going to be an anticipated spike in the summer as things began to reopen, as people began to, to move around a little bit more. And so to place that squarely at the feet of Black people who are protesting, I think is dishonest. But it's also consistent with how white supremacy sometimes manifests, right? This idea of blaming Black people for stuff, laying, black, laying responsibility at the feet of Black people for things that aren't, in fact, things that one can trace to Black people. So, I mean, we, we even heard this language in 2016. Black people were held responsible, right, to varying degrees for Trump's election into the White House. Um, Black people were held responsible several years ago in varying degrees to California's passage of some anti-gay legislation, right? So there becomes this kind of way that Black people get scapegoated for um, broader social issues, whether it makes sense numerically or not. And, you know, the other thing kind of tying to the protests, Black people even get blamed for being killed by the police, right? So in the case of George Floyd and Eric Garner, right? There were conversations about their underlying health conditions. In the case of Floyd, it was it was a pulmonary hypertension. In the case of Garner, it was asthma, right? That um, there was this language of, you know, but for their health status, they may still be alive, which we know that's, that's entirely false. And also, um, just to name a few others, Tatiana Jefferson, Tamir Rice, again, blamed for not responding to police commands quickly enough as though 
less than 20 seconds is enough time to, to respond under circumstances. So we can talk about that a little bit too. But the second kind of line of negative thinking I've seen is kind of questioning of black people's intelligence. And again, that's consistent with this broader kind of social and political context in which we operate. So black people are out protesting because black people are too stupid to fully appreciate the risks. So the line of arguing goes. And, you know, aside from the general just wrongness of that and the general falseness of kind of racialized differences in intelligence, that too becomes a manifestation of, of white supremacy. So for Black folks to make different decisions than other people feel Black people should make becomes, becomes a reflection of lack of intelligence and not a kind of understanding that perhaps the variables are different the the cards that black folks are dealt are different and so you know people are making different calculations based on a very different range of options and a different understanding of the role and weight of racism in our lives so you know i think i've just kind of giving you a little framing of how i'm thinking about this or how i'm approaching this and the connection between these protests and um the global pandemic these global protests and the global pandemic, at least as it relates in, in the U.S. context. Great. Um, thank you. Thank you so much. There's so much to think about there, um, both just about, I mean, you know, I think that all of us and certainly myself are still kind of like grappling with what the pandemic is and means historically and going forward, but to then add on to it, how to, how to think of it as the backdrop against which these, these protests and uprisings are happening is a whole other layer of, of kind of reflection that's required. I mean, just to, I guess, something that I've been, I've been noticing a lot, and I think this, um, this sort of connects in some way to your the kind of two strategies of critiquing the protests um as either kind of like some sense of um kind of presumed irresponsibility or victim blaming on the one hand or an intimation that there is kind of a lack of intelligence for making decisions that are in black people's own self-interest when they go to join the protest um, and so, I mean, I think that those are very, you know, and they're not always separate, I don't think. Mm -hmm. um, no, no, but no, they're not thing, discreet. Yeah, one thing, one thing I've noticed in the last few days, especially, is various kind of letters and statements from progressive epidemiologists, public health experts, doctors, saying that they support the protests, both because, you know, there's, you know, and it's sometimes it's claimed, and, you know, I'm not a medical expert, so I can't evaluate the medical claim that, you know, the relative risk of severe transmission in an outdoor space when most people are wearing masks, that they seem to be, at least on the basis of, you know, documentation that I've seen. But then also what I think is really striking is talking specifically about um, racism and white supremacy in general, but police violence specifically in the language of disease or pandemic or even epidemic, right? So talking about there's an epidemic of racism, an epidemic of police brutality, just as there is a COVID pandemic. And I certainly don't think, I mean, this is not the first time that we've heard that language be used, but 
I mean, it seems like the way that it's being used now is a shift from, you know, five years ago when we first saw the kind of real emergence of Black Lives Matter as a national movement after Ferguson, we might talk about an epidemic of police violence as a sort of metaphor using that kind of language of something that is kind of infecting the body politic. And now it seems like it's being used in a very different way of thinking that there are two pandemics going on and that, you know, to fight one requires taking to the streets, even if that may have costs in fighting the other. And, you know, on the one hand, I see the rhetorical appeal of it. I mean, I do think it's a really striking move. Um, and, and, you know, I think that it's important given the sort of delegitimizing tactics that are being used against the protests. But, you know, I wonder ultimately just if you have any thoughts on that kind of framing that, you know, we've been seeing emerge emerge kind of in pieces over the last few days and to what extent um, it's a useful way of thinking, both both useful in the moment in order to kind of defend the legitimacy of the protest, <clears throat> but then also just kind of as, you know, I think there's this real question about kind of in general, the that kind of framing of, of white supremacy generally and police violence particularly, um, I think remains a kind of open question. So I just want to kind of put that out there. Yeah, so so the idea of right so so i'm hearing a few different things in in your question right one is about kind of using racism in particular or, or thinking about racism as a public health crisis and we know that there are scholars um who've worked on racism in healthcare and, and public health and epidemiology and bioethics who for years have framed it this way. And what's and the other thing that's kind of interesting is that it hasn't, you know, as you pointed out, that framing hasn't gotten a whole lot of uptake, right, outside of those spaces that's until not. relatively recently. And, and, and in fact, um, because I've seen this myself, right, scholars have had, scholars who um, kind of frame this as a significant public health issue have often had to justify that framing right, and have been, um, have not been taken as seriously as it should be in justifying that particular framing. And so it is interesting that in kind of recent years, you're starting to see others understand uh, racism as itself a public health issue or an issue that has negative impact on particularly black lives, but also Latinx lives and indigenous lives. Now the further framing of, of racism or, and, and just to back up, um, you know, you're seeing organizations, right? Medical organizations coming out and saying this, right? I think the American Association of Medical Specialties, you know, released a statement in the last few days about, you know, racism is a public health issue, right? Um, the extension of that is thinking about racism as itself an epidemic in the way that COVID-19 has been an epidemic or is and continues to be an epidemic. And I think, you know, although it sounds, you know, it, it's an interesting way to think about, uh, to think about racism. Right, I mean, rhetorically, it sounds nice. People are thinking about COVID now. People are thinking about police violence and white supremacy now. But I think that we ought resist that particular framing 
Because it, it makes it sound as though racism just kind of sprung up out of nowhere. The way that COVID-19 seems to have sprung up and, oh my gosh, we have this thing and now we're just all ill-equipped to deal with it and we don't know what to do. When the reality is that racism hasn't just sprung up, right? It's been here. And, you know, some have opted for any number of reasons not to see it or not to think it's that big a deal. I think that, of course, as many others have said, technology makes a difference now. Um, but, you know, we had technology in the 60s when people were being attacked during the civil rights movement. And so, you know, I, I would kind of resist that framing on, on those grounds. But also my colleague, Ariana Planey, who's, I think, who's at UNC School of Public Health, talks about resisting that framing for a different reason. And, and she thinks about it from the standpoint of thinking about racism as kind of a natural process in the way that COVID-19 is. And that that framing can reify a conception of race that is biological in the way that this virus is, um, that, that she thinks is, is, is troubling, right? Because race isn't biological in the same kind of way that COVID-19 is. And so once you kind of go down that path, then it's easier, it becomes easier rhetorically, linguistically, to think about race as opposed to racism as being the driving factor that we need to, we need to think about. Yeah, no, I mean, that, that sort of is all very much the sorts of things that I've been, that I've been sort of thinking in a perhaps kind of less, less kind of formed out way. But I mean, as you were speaking, one thing that I thought of is, you know, this question of the, the kind of setting these up as parallel processes seems to suggest, as I think you quite succinctly put, the idea that racism is kind of both naturalized and also kind of dehistoricized, that it's something that just kind of springs up and with which society is confronted in the same way that COVID-19 springs up. And I mean, I suppose there, I, I think that's kind of right, but I also kind of wonder if one can reverse that and look at work that's being done on the production of new viruses precisely through the shift in human human relations with the biosphere, right? So, mm -hmm. I mean, you know, and of course it's probably too early to have conclusive evidence for what's going on, but one of the things that's been discussed, um, you know, as a, as a possible source, both for COVID and then for SARS earlier, has been the way in which there's been an expansion, um, you know, an expansion of, um, food production into, so I mean two things. One is an expansion of food production into toward wildlife and the marketization of wildlife, which introduces um, animal-borne viruses that formerly humans had no contact with. And then also just, you know, kind of like the intensification of factory farming, which produces, I mean, in that case, that's more, I think, on the side of hypothetical kind of super, super bacteria. But, you know, so I think that there is perhaps a way to, you know, recognizing precisely that the metaphor seems inapt because race needs to be thought of historically, might also prompt us to look back at COVID and think about the ways in which it's also produced. Yes, of course, it's a natural process. Viruses aren't man-made in a literal way, but they are something that, or the, the sorts of ways that they're coming, coming about now 
are very much the result of a specific process. And then of course the diffusion because of the degree of global integration, both the passenger and supply chains and stuff like that. So, I mean, it seems, yeah, I don't know. I mean, that's just kind of, that just, that just popped into mind because until now I'd been very kind of exactly resistant for the reasons, reasons you've said. And I think it is still like a very tricky comparison. I mean, I guess while we're thinking about this kind of worry about slipping into a kind of biological or biologistic notion of race, I mean, I think that's also kind of a, perhaps one of the anxieties that's behind the worry about thinking about underlying conditions, right? I mean, you know, if one is not careful to really articulate how those underlying conditions are produced socially, it risks having the implication that certain groups of people, Black, Indigenous people, for example, are simply by virtue of kind of a putative racial, racial difference, a biological difference predisposed to certain illnesses. And I mean, I think there's a similar, similar worry there. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, I mean, yeah, I guess like just maybe we can, I, I think what you said about kind of thinking about underlying conditions and how to talk about those, um, is really is really kind of something that maybe we can maybe we can circle back to briefly because I mean one thing that it one thing that comes to mind is like for you know there's the there's the matter of victim blaming but then also because of the knowledge of underlying conditions at the individual level what that means for people's ability to participate in the protests right and to go out to a protest when one has the knowledge of being at higher risk is very different than the decision to go to a protest as a young person without those risk factors. Um, and it can either mean, you know, you can see it, I guess, in two ways, one of which is that certain people are kind of like either shut out from the protest or have to take on much more risk in order to participate. And then one can also see perhaps um, kind of an imperative for people that are able to put themselves at more risk to take on that kind of act of solidarity. Um, but of course, then the question of who is acting and who's speaking becomes becomes kind of like a, a real a real a real fraud issue. Um, I'm just curious if you have any. Yeah, so um, I definitely don't. Right. So for me, the exact wrong answer would be to ignore, or or to to kind of say no, we can't talk about underlying medical conditions or underlying medical conditions are irrelevant. I think right. they're precisely relevant in this moment where we're protesting, you know, specifically yeah. police violence, but more broadly institutional and systemic racism, right? Because, you uh -huh. know, as I said earlier, they become exact manifestations of that very thing. Um, and I think when you frame it in that way, then, then you understand that these things have to be part of the conversation. I think people who do um, specifically disability ethics disability work um, have the bandwidth and, and are kind of showing how to think about that language even um, that I think is is instructive even um, though lots of folks don't necessarily identify as specifically having a disability I think that a lot of these chronic issues in particular are disabling and mm -hmm. I think that um, you know the, the frameworks and, and understanding are, are incredibly helpful in terms of getting a handle on how to talk and how to think about that. You know, I've said elsewhere, um, not in print, but I've, I've kind of said it when giving talks, that as a child, right, 
diabetes was so prevalent in, in kind of my broader rural Southern community and particularly in my family that I thought, like I sincerely thought, diabetes is just something black people get as we age, right? I thought it, I thought diabetes was like gray hair, right? You just, it just happens as you, as you age. And, you know, as I got older and really understand what that means to have access to healthcare, what that means to have other kinds of access to, to food, to different environments, what that means for, you know, one's, the stress of one's life to contribute to the kinds of conditions that lead to diabetes. I think that that's an important discussion, right? So it's not being black <laughs> means that one has diabetes. It's, you know, living under racism that contributes to, that creates and contributes to the kinds of conditions that lead to these higher rates of diabetes, for instance. And, I, and I'm pointing out diabetes not only because that's kind of what springs to mind for me, but, but we know that having diabetes um, becomes a different risk factor, right? Becomes an additional vulnerability for um, a COVID-19 diagnosis. Right. right, well, diabetes and also I believe kid, well, kidney, kidney diseases yeah. and disorders are also a major risk factor, if I'm not mistaken. Right, and, COVID, and we know um, that kidney disease the becomes kind of one of those, um, as diabetes worsens, right, one is kidney damage and kidney disease often develop in, in conjunction with that. So. Right. Um, what, was, what was I going to say? Um, sorry, I'm, I'm, I'm blanking on, on the <laughs> no, question no, I had. But, <laughs> yeah, I mean, I guess, I guess one thing that, that really kind of, you know, as, as we've gone back and forth and I can't quite remember the way I wanted to frame it as a question, but maybe I'll just throw it out, is the way in which this is sparked as protests often are by a kind of singular and particularly horrific act of violence. And of course that's mediated now, particularly by technology and the existence of cell phone footage. But you know, one thing that we've also seen is that there's been a real broadening of the demands of the protest to think not just about ending police violence, but also about the way in which care is provided generally and particularly to um, underprivileged and black communities, right? So the calls to defund or even abolish the police are, you know, most often coupled with saying abolish the police and use those $6 billion that go into the NYPD budget, say, to reinvest in public health, right? So, and that strikes me as a way precisely to, I'm not sure if it's quite to connect both aspects of public health, but is kind of an important way in which you can see these as not just kind of too unrelated and potentially, because the, the real risk seems to be of seeing the protests and COVID as two things that somehow have a connection with American racism, but themselves are in tension and where the interests are actually conflict with one another. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I mean, one thing that, that came to mind as you mentioned that is, you know, just the ways, right? I don't think that people outside of the U.S. in particular realize just how deeply um, healthcare systems and the police are, are actually intertwined, right? So it's, so, 
there's this understanding of, of police violence as you know, psychologically damaging for communities, right? I mean, we have good data that show that, um, that it's traumatic to witness this over and over again, that, you know, the presence of police in communities has a deleterious effect, right? It's not, oh, we feel safer. It's often we feel less safe. But, you know, even in hospitals, in underserved communities, there's often a very strong police presence. And I think a lot of people don't realize that, right? That the police are, are there walking around ostensibly to maintain order, um, that physicians, that healthcare personnel will call the police, will report people to the police who appear to have overdosed on drugs or who have, um, who seem to have engaged in other kinds of um, illegal activities, um, presumptively or actually, right? And so, um, there's a kind of deep intertwining of the police state and and our healthcare system in ways that sometimes people don't don't always appreciate even in the U.S. but certainly not outside of the U.S. Right? Yeah, Things like drug I mean, testing, uh, pregnant women, right? That those often result in calls to the police. Sure. Or thinking about, I mean, you know, in Chicago, where I spent several years doing my graduate work, like I believe. At least, at least as of a couple of years ago, the Cook County Jail, which is a huge, huge jail, one of the largest kind of pretrial urban urban jails in the country, is also the um, largest provider of mental health care in the U.S. Mm -hmm. Right, and so people, so there's physical health, but you know, I think that mental health, you know, yeah, the yeah, there's a question of the kind of psychological toll of both personal interactions with the police and witnessing them, but also the way in which police become the primary police and then the prison system into which the police feed people become the primary form of mental health care for many people, right? So, so many of the calls to the police are calls that are really about people's, people in psychological distress, right? And the idea seems extremely dubious at best, if not just kind of necessarily false, that that is the kind of an adequate way of providing that, right? The idea that you're going to have a functioning psych ward within the context of a jail um, seems like a profoundly, um, you know, once you actually start to think, think about it, I mean, it seems like it's an impossible notion to defend. And of course, that's not, you know, I doubt there's much kind of defending of it at an intellectual level going on. That's just, you know, as it were, the way things are. But um, And that's you know, if the, you make the, it to jail, right? Sure. Because we know that some of the some of the higher profile killings have been, you know, directly related to families making distress right. calls on behalf of, of a relative who's in crisis and the police comes right. and open fire. Right. Well in fact that that in Toronto a couple of weeks ago, this the, the young woman who I mentioned at the beginning and who's been, you know, in whose name some of the protests that have happened here have occurred. Um, Regis, I mean, that was precisely that. It was a distressed call from her mother. She was having a kind of severe mental health crisis. The police arrived and they didn't allow her mother into the apartment while they talked to her. And she ended up um, dying from falling off. Um, falling off a balcony under dubious circumstances that of course there's no there's no 
precise record, but it's precisely like the idea that that is the only intervention that's available um, in, you know, and people obviously, if that's the only thing that's available in a time of crisis, people are going to are going to turn to that. Uh, yeah, I mean, I think that you know, at the University of Chicago, where I went to graduate school, the the police shot a student who was again having a severe mental health crisis, and he he survived, but he was taken first to the hospital and then to Cook County Jail, where he's been in and out, and the university has pressed charges, right? So there's this complete, you know, I think in, in that term that you use, police state, suddenly we're hearing that, and, you know, we think of that as kind of like a characterization of North Korea, these kind of like, you know, uh, exemplary authoritarian states, but I think it's, you know, something that's where is kind of emerging is the way in which the police and prison, they're just kind of embedded in all social institutions, um, hospitals, schools, et cetera. Um, and you know, then as a result to so like abolition, the calls for abolition really require rethinking of the entire way that our institutions are, are set up. Um, yeah, do you have anything specific that you want to cover? Well, do we, how is our YouTube stream looking? How, how is our YouTube chat looking? Um, we don't really have questions. We have sort of a number of fairly, to be honest, and I'm going to speak frankly, pretty trollish questions that I don't think are worth addressing. Okay. Um, I can send them to you privately. They're simply, uh, they're, they're, they're neither, yeah, they're not. They're simply not serious questions, and many of them are offensive um, from a single person who has taken up the entire chat, which is really unfortunate, um, given that last time we managed to have an extremely productive <laughs> dialogue with the people in the chat. But I suppose this is always a risk, not just of YouTube, but of any, um, any sort of. So I think. I'd like to kind of go back to the conversation about um, how we think about taking to the streets and how to respond, you know, if there is a COVID spike and what that looks like. Um, so I'm curious if you've if you've thought about that at all. Like, what what, what is the answer to be? I mean. Right, we know that there are more factors than just protests, but I can imagine that the narrative, at least in some circles, is going to be um, about these particular protests, not the ones that happened a few weeks ago. Yeah, I mean, one thing that I guess, you know, I think has been really beautiful about the protests, and you know, we've seen, I think we've seen a lot of kind of mutual aid projects that have sprung up during COVID prior to the protests. But I think there's been a kind of real ramping up of that. Um, one of the most striking ones that comes to mind is this hotel in Minneapolis, this Sheraton that was empty because of the pandemic and was basically taken over by community members who provided housing for I think like 200 unhoused people. And there was like a huge outpouring of supplies and food and they like had a cleaning um, 
you know, like a kind of cleaning routine to disinfect and stuff. So, I mean, it was just kind of like, and it was totally spontaneous, right? And kind of figuring things out as it goes. And, you know, if there's a mass outbreak, obviously that kind of like one-off thing is not going to contain it. But I do think there's a kind of, you know, and I hope it doesn't sound romantic to say it, but an upsurge in this kind of, you know, real kind of like collective thinking about how to take care of each other without necessarily going via a, um, you know, a state system um, that has been consistently, consistently failing, um, not only Black people, but particularly Black people, right? So, I mean, I think that, you know, really trying to hold on to those models of collective care and mutual aid, should we see a resurgence of the pandemic, um, is perhaps something that could be, you know, as opposed to, you know, a lesson to make the next wave, should it come, um, kind of easier than the first one. Um, and, you know, that's both the learning of the first wave, but also I think possibly like an outcome of the protests themselves. Um, and, you know, what's happening in Seattle, I haven't seen what's happening today, but there's this kind of like incredible the community has just like taken over and created an autonomous zone providing food and shelter and whatever. And we'll see how long, you know, these are obviously highly contested and often subject to severe repression, but there really seems to be across the country this this kind of push for, for kind of mutuality and community-driven projects, which is precisely what people who are talking about defunding, disbanding, abolishing the police want to replace it with, right? So it's sort of this creation of, of, a, of a new world. That doesn't sound like too much, but. Um. And I know our time is kind of winding down a bit, but one conversation that I've had um, over the last I would say weak with a lot of people. You and I haven't had this conversation. So um, I don't think you and I have had this conversation. Um, but I'm curious kind of what you're thinking or or kind of where your where your mind is on this. Is what is the role, if role is the appropriate term? Like where do you think white people, right, who are who are well-meaning and or who imagine themselves or desire to be um, allies? fit into not only the conversations, right? I know we're talking about what is our title, Black Health Matters and Racing Pandemic, but but in also these larger conversations about um, race and the pandemic and these protests, um, we're seeing a lot of, well, I'll just leave it at that and we, we can, we can kind of come back. Yeah, I mean, I guess there's like two things, two kind of versions of white participation in the protest. And I mean, I guess like full disclosure is like I've I have to say self isolate for medical reasons like right for these two weeks. So I haven't actually like been outside my house. So I've been following along and like talking to friends in various cities, both mo mostly in New York. Um, and it seems like one thing is really kind of like a very militant multiracial struggle, kind of like in the spirit of the late 60s and kind of you know like the the kind of model of um kind of like coalitional politics that you saw you know as early as the black power movement and the black panthers and then later on and thinking about how groups could kind of remain accountable and organized but kind of really try to build shared self-interest right and i think i mean i guess 
you know, just to put my cards on the table, that seems like the really promising model because it really has people having a stay together, right? And standing, standing shoulder to shoulder. The other one that, you know, I've seen is this very kind of um, penitential model of white engagement, right? And I think there've been a couple of viral videos. There was like this mass gathering of, I think it might've been in North Carolina of white people kind of kneeling down and kind of, you know, quote unquote, renouncing their white privilege whatever that could mean, the idea that you could do that through a kind of like invocation or a chant. There was another one of white people like kneeling before their black neighbors kind of asking for forgiveness. There was one of a kind of police organized thing where white residents were washing the feet of black residents of a neighborhood. And of course the most extreme one I think is when the congressional leaders both white and black in this case, but you know, like Nancy Pelosi and Chuck Schumer, the kind of chief congressional Democrats did this kind of photo op before introducing what, you know, to my mind and in the mind of a lot of people, I'm certainly not alone in this, is a totally kind of like anemic COVID response bill and also anti-police brutality bill of like kneeling down in the Capitol Rotunda wearing kente cloth stoles, right? And like, so it's that, there's, it also seems like alongside this very militant kind of hearkening back to a moment of truly coalitional politics, there's also this kind of like incredible focus with a kind of veneer of kind of how to be an anti-racist on what strikes me as a very kind of like selfish, um, selfish kind of obsession with how to kind of like do the right thing or kind of how to be, or sorry, actually doing the right thing seems like perhaps a good thing. It's like how to be the perfect white person that I think you see on the other side. And that seems like it's really, um, it kind of misses the point. And, you know, often it ends up being simply offensive. I mean, like, you know, there's been a lot of mockery on Twitter and elsewhere of the of the thing in Congress, but it's it, it does seem like emblematic of a certain kind of, you know, perhaps well-meaning, sure, but white engagement with that is sometimes tone deaf yeah more totally. than sometimes tone yeah. deaf, right i mean i saw the um well i've seen all of those images that you referred to but the foot washing one was particularly uh disconcerting for me i think that was even more disconcerting than the kentua i don't know i, I don't know if i can rank how, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> how disturbed like, i've been by some of these images be but, but yeah i'm like how whose idea was the foot washing thing like okay so i get that there are um kind of deep roots in Christianity among kind of right. servant leadership and foot washing. But this didn't feel like that. And, it, you know, it felt performative and strange. And, right. you know, right. I I would have wanted to be far, far away from that yeah. if anyone approached me to wash my feet. Um, yeah. yeah. Um, you know, I think that what you said, you know, of course, yes, the foot washing, the, that foot washing ritual kind of you know, cringy, as they say on the internet, as it was, of course, does have this root in kind of Christian symbolism and biblical narratives and practices and stuff like that, right? And of course, we also know that kind of Christianity, in particular, the Black church, but also kind of like, in particular, kind of progressive white Protestant churches in the North have been a kind of major driver of social change in the history of the United States, both, you know, 
leading up to abolition and then in particular during the civil rights movement in the 60s, right? So it's like, um, you know, that I don't think, I certainly don't think it's kind of like figuring out how to find something really valuable in this kind of like religious impulse while not just giving in to that, that kind of like totally performative um, weirdness is a real question going forward. Um, sorry, I think, okay, so we do have some questions now. Let me um, scroll through them, some like good questions. Okay, so um, one is, asking about the way in which gender dynamics fit into the protests, and I suppose also COVID, if you wanna to touch on that. Um, I mean, I guess the most obvious thing that comes to mind for me is the way in which, you know, there's been a real push, um, I think importantly to um, recenter the way in which violence affects not just black men, but also black women, but I'll just leave, leave that to you as well. Yeah, I mean, I, I would say the same thing, um, particularly, um, and most recently, Breonna Taylor. Um, you know, the other kind of way that I think about and talk about police violence, certainly with my students, right? Because Can the you hear me? You're frozen are, for me. I'm frozen? Oh, no, you're great. <laughs> okay. Um, right. Killings garner a certain kind of attention, and rightfully so. Um, however, the question that I often pose to my students is, okay, so what is the kind of second, second kind of the, the you know, in, in terms of the top complaints that are made against police, right? Excessive force is, I think, number one. What, what is the number two complaint? And, you know, my students are often stumped and I'll tell them it's sexual assault, it's sexual mm -hmm. abuse. Mm -hmm. And, you know, the most famous case in the U.S. involves Officer Daniel Holtzclaw, who's in Oklahoma City, who specifically targeted Black women. And he targeted Black women precisely because he said, no one will believe you because you're Black women. And many of these women had had encounters with law enforcement before, which also, given how we think about rape and sexual assault and sexual abuse in this country, um, is automatically undermining to their credibility. And so the fact that Holtzclaw got away with this for so long and that many people don't even know his name um, or the fact that um, I think he had 13 victims uh, mm -hmm. who, who came forward, right? Uh, he's one of the few police officers who's engaged in these kind of violent acts who actually was found guilty by, by a jury. So I think he's sitting in prison somewhere. Um, now, but yeah, those conversations um, and, and the, the kind of moves to to think about the fact that yes, black women are also killed by the police, and we also have these um, kinds of experiences with police. Not to say that men don't have them, but that also have to be centered and taken seriously. And then when you think about you know the health stuff that's happening, we know autoimmune diseases, which certain ones of them um, become complication, complicating factors in COVID-19, disproportionately impact women. And so um, for me, those are kind of two of the, two of the more obvious points. What are you thinking, Elena? Yeah, I mean, I guess both, both those, I guess, would be the first things that come to mind. Um, the other two things, um, you know, the, the specificity, yes, the shared experience of police violence and brutality between 
black men and black women. Um, and then, you know, as you say, the kind of specificity of gendered violence against women by police. I mean, the other form of gendered violence is, you know, these statistics that I think have started garnering attention for the first time, but have been studied for a while is the degree of reported domestic violence by police officers against their own spouses. And of course, you know, everything that we know about what's reported means that the statistics are, you know, we don't know the accuracy of them. Usually it's lower rather under, than under. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's almost always underreported, but there's something like, you know, there's some there's some reports against. I think it's like 40% of police officers have had um, some form of domestic violence complaint made against them, right? And that's obviously um, reflects a way that the sort of culture of violence embedded in American police, and as we've said, because of the way the police are this kind of structuring force of American institutions writ large are marked by this gendered violence and kind of, you know, patriarchal sensibilities, if we want to call them that. Um, I guess the other more local thing that I, I, I'm just thinking about because of the protests, which I've seen a few times, is the fact that tear gas, which we've seen just used on a mass scale, um, you know, I don't know the last time, if ever, tear gas has been used kind of across the country in the way that it's been used now, is a powerful abortifacient, right? So for pregnant women or pregnant people that are attending the protests, this is an additional risk, right? And one of the ironies that's been pointed out is the kind of so-called right to life movement has had nothing to say about that. But you know, but I think that is again, I mean, the sorts of repressive tactics, sorry, I just spilled some water, that are being used are going to affect different groups of people by race, but also by, by gender disproportionately. Um, there are a couple of questions about sort of what to do as it were, if we're kind of thinking seriously about abolition, both with police and prisons, about the kind of like truly violent, violent offenders. And there's actually been a really kind of productive like discussion in the chat, which is great to see. Um, so someone asked what to do about the kind of people that commit heinous crimes. And you know, one one person points out that the kind of way in which the degree of those heinous crimes is something that is in part largely produced by a kind of sensational news media, but also points to Ruthie Wilson Gilmore's work on the kind of construction, the use of kind of like kind of you know very singular and rare forms of violent crime in order to justify a police and prison state. Um, so I'm going to end there, but in addition to Gilmore's work, which I think is super, super important, um, the I believe it's the first chapter in Angela Davis's Our Prisons Obsolete, I think also is a really good kind of, you know, and Gilmore's a geographer and is more empirically based, and Davis is a philosopher, so thinking at a more kind of, um, you know, maybe abstract level or something. But she also, I think, kind of tries to grapple with that question. You know, yes, of course, it's a matter of taking the social services out of the role of the police, but then also thinking about what what about those cases of severe violence. And, you know, I think that, uh, yeah, she, she's kind of said it best. And since we're being signaled that we're out of time, I'll just put a, put a shout out to that um, as well. So yeah, thank you so much. And I hope we get to do this in some form yeah, or another thank again. You. Thank you um, for having me yet again. Yeah, okay, I'm so glad. I really hope that we get to do this like in person.
Yeah, one day we will. I pro- uh, you know, I think one day we will. But I also want to thank our audience too. Yes. So thank you, yeah, thank for, you for hanging in there with us for this hour. Yeah. Okay. Thank you so much, Yolanda. And thank you. All to right. Take care, everyone. Stay safe. Bye-bye. Yes.